the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Well, as Ian shared, we've been starting to walk through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're taking 14 weeks to do it, but I got to confess, as a preacher and a pastor, it's super intimidating to re-preach Jesus' sermons. And each week, as I kind of like spend time in the section that I'm preparing for, I'm just at first trying to allow the Holy Spirit to like allow Jesus' sermon to sink into me. And then when I go deliver it to you, to not get in the way of it, but to just kind of present Jesus' words and maybe provide a little bit further understanding. And so we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. The first two weeks, Ian and I unpacked the Beatitudes. Last week, Abby looked at Jesus' words around being salt and light. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up right where she left off in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. In verse 17, in this next section of Jesus' sermon, starts with these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So why would you think that Jesus is starting this section of his sermon? Why is he starting it with a disclaimer? That he he didn't come to get rid of the law, to get rid of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Well, I'll suggest the reason that he starts this section with a disclaimer is because people thought he was trying to get rid of the law, right? They thought he was trying to get rid of the Old Testament. They found his actions and his teachings to be objectionable. They very much looked at him as being a troublemaker. And so he tells them, no, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Now that statement, I came to fulfill the law, so he tells them right from the outset, he makes this disclaimer that I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill it. And that piece of his claim that he came to fulfill the law was quite a claim by Jesus because essentially what he was saying, what he was telling them was that all of the Old Testament was pointing to him. That, that we have the law and the prophets, the Old Testament writings, and he says, I didn't come to get rid of that. I came to fulfill it. And so it's all pointing to me. And they're kind of clues and hints pointing to Jesus. How many of you guys have ever watched a good movie a second time? And maybe, yeah, maybe it was a movie with clues and hints, and there's a big plot reveal at the end. I love movies with plot reveals at the end where they have all the hints and the clues, and you're watching it, and all of a sudden you get to the end, and you're like, it's a gotcha moment. It's like, oh, yeah. All all the things, it it pointed to that. Um, Last week, my son and I, Judah, and I went and watched the new M. Night Shyamalan movie, Glass. And Glass is, is a third movie in a trilogy of movies that he did. The first one came out in the year 2000. So it was 19 years ago, and it was called Unbreakable. And so I I made it a point to rewatch the first movie 
before I went and saw the third movie. Now, my experience watching the first movie for the first time all those years ago was that I didn't know where it was going, right? When it got to the end, I saw the plot reveal, and I was like, oh, my God, oh, yeah, of course. But the second time I watched this movie, the rewatch of the movie, I viewed it differently because I got to start from the end. Right? I knew what the big reveal already was. I knew what the plot already was. And so the second time I watched that movie, I was, it allowed me to see all the little clues and hints that were pointing to the plot. They were pointing to the big reveal, and I could see them clearly. The first time, I didn't see them. I missed them. But the second time, because I knew the ending, I could see them all and be like, oh, oh yeah, this all points to that last scene at the end. See, when Jesus is delivering the Sermon at the Mount, and he's telling all of his listeners, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. What he's really saying to them is, hey, go back and watch the movie a second time. Go read the Old Testament, and here's what you'll find. The clues were there all along, that they all point to me. That's what Jesus was telling them. They all point to him. And in essence, he, he, he's saying to them, you thought that the Old Testament, the laws and the prophets were all about purity laws and eating kosher, but there's a bigger plot. There's a bigger plot revealed. It's not about becoming unclean by eating shellfish. How many of you eat lobster? Lawbreakers. <laughs> but Jesus says this in Matthew 15. He says, it's not what goes in the mouth that makes someone unclean, right? It's what comes out of the mouth. That demonstrates purity. See, here's the thing. You and I, we've seen the movie. We know that Jesus is the one who makes us clean. But this audience in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when they're sitting on the mountain, hearing Jesus' words for the first time, they're watching this movie for the first time. They're hearing Jesus say some things for the first time, that he's not come to abolish the law, but he wants to fulfill it, bring a fuller expression of it. He's telling them that the law matters, but not the way you think it does. It's not going away. It's being deepened. He's telling them that he came to reveal the heart of God behind it all, behind all the law. He's going to give a fuller expression of it. So here's how he does this. It's really brilliant. He goes back to the Old Testament, and he finds some examples from the law to demonstrate his point. And so in this section of his sermon, he's going to go back to the Old Testament and quote passages about murder, adultery, divorce, making vows, revenge, loving your neighbor. He's going to go back and he's going to quote some Old Testament scripture, some law. Then he's going to follow it up with a statement, not against scripture, but probing behind it and fleshing it out. And then, finally, he's going to show his listeners how each law, each example that he brings up, remains in effect, but in a greater way. He provides a fuller expression of it. So are you ready to look at a few examples? Let's do it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Oh, i got to tell you this part. He frames each one of these examples with a specific phrase, and it's this. You've heard it said, but I tell you. So he'll say something like, you've heard it said, and then he'll quote an Old Testament passage, one part of the law. And then he says, but I tell you. And in doing so, he's going behind it, and he's probing it, and he's saying there's a bigger intention here. 
There's, some, there's a fuller expression of this law that you're missing. And he's trying to demonstrate with the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom. And so let's start. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So he starts with this statement, right? You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then he quotes the law against murder. And then he provides a fuller expression of it. And he uses some shocking language here. He's trying to startle them out of their complacency. He says this, that if you say raka to someone, raka just means like airheaded, ditzy, empty-headed. He goes, if you call someone an airhead or ditzy, it's a criminal offense. He says, if you call someone a fool or an idiot, you're in danger of hellfire. Strong words by Jesus, right? What's he doing here? Well, he's using a form of hyperbole and hyperbole is just like when you exaggerate to make a point. You ever done that before? Well, the, the rabbis, Jewish rabbis did it all the time, and Jesus does it all throughout Scripture. He uses a form of hyperbole to shock them and get their attention. He says, look, you've heard it said, do not murder, but there's a d- deeper divine intention behind that commandment. It goes deeper than that. See, if you control your anger and contempt, then murder will never occur. And so Jesus is deepening this law. He's not abolishing it. The aim of this law, Jesus is teaching them, is reconciliation. It's, it's restored relationships. Look at the next verse. He goes on. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is deepening this. He starts out with, don't, you've heard it said, do not murder, but it goes deeper. It's about reconciliation. And he tells them that relating well with others matters a great deal to God. In fact, it matters more to him than your tithes and offerings. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you have your gift, you're bringing it before God, just drop it. Because God doesn't even want your gift if, you, if, if you're not reconciled with others. If you don't have good relationships with others, don't, don't, don't bring your gift. Go fix that first. Can you imagine how broke our churches would be if that word leaked out, if that message leaked out? We, we got to keep that in the down low somehow, right? No, but this is Jesus' words. He's serious about this stuff. He's like, hey, the kingdom of God, it goes way beyond don't kill each other. The kingdom of God is about reconciliation, about restored relationships. In fact, if you bring a gift to God, don't even do it if you have ought with your brother and sister. Take care of that first because it matters to God. So you thought it was just about not killing each other, but the kingdom's about much more than not killing each other. It's about respecting and honoring each other and about reconciling and building relationships. Jesus wants his followers to to live radically reconciled lives. The next verse, verse 25, he says these words, settle matters quickly. Do it quickly. This Old Testament law, do not murder, it goes way deeper. 
It's about striving for reconciled relationships. He's essentially telling them, you haven't killed anyone. Good on you. (laughs) But I'm going to show you how deep this law goes. The divine intention, it's deeper than than just not killing anyone. Because reconciliation is a kingdom reality. And it matters, but you're missing it. You're overlooking it because you're just focused on this law. You ready for the next one? I only need one person to say yes for me to go on to the next point. So just to be warned. Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's Jesus again. He says, the law said don't cheat on your spouse. But there's a fuller expression of that law in the heart of God. A fuller expression. See, just like murder begins with anger and contempt, lust begins with a look and an imagination. Now, our imagination is one of the most precious gifts God gives us. Our imagination is wonderful, but when we use it to lust, we impair our ability to enjoy covenant love. That's why pornography is so damaging, because it, it, it gives a false promise of intimacy, but it does the exact opposite, right? It isolates us. It, it robs us of intimacy. It objectifies sex as something we take for ourselves. It doesn't deliver on what it promises. Verse 29, he goes on. Strong words from Jesus. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Here's a weird question. Why don't we see more one-handed Christians and one-eyed Christians. (laughs) Was Jesus literally telling people, hey, if if your eye's causing you to lust, just gouge it out and just throw it in the trash. (laughs) If your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. (laughs) What's Jesus saying here? Well, again, he's using hyperbole again. It's a form of exaggeration to make a point. He's not literally telling his followers to take their eyes out and to cut off their hands. What he's doing is he's telling them that fidelity is a kingdom reality that's being overlooked. See, you thought it was just enough not to cheat on your spouse, but I tell you that the kingdom functions at a real deep level. It's about, it's about respect, and it's about journeying together. It's about living a rugged commitment of fidelity. That's what the kingdom is. You thought it was just don't kill each other and don't cheat. But it's more. Right? So how do we go about doing that? That's the big question. How do we go about living a lifelong rugged commitment to fidelity in a sex-saturated society? Well, we can't without a steady inflow of God's grace. We can't without a steady inflow of God's grace. And here's where we get a steady inflow of God's grace. In spiritual practices. Like confession. Confession's a powerful one. When I was a kid, I grew up Roman Catholic. And I was an altar boy. And we had these booths in the back corner. And they were confessional booths. Everybody ever see a confessional booth? 
And each week, I would go into the confessional booth, and I, I would confess my sins to the priest. And I'm telling you, there's, there's something that the Roman Catholics get right about that. Because confession is a powerful practice. There's something about confession where it, it, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, it's humbling. But Scripture tells us that God draws near the humble, and he resists the proud, right? And there's something about confession that's just powerful. It's just freeing. It's liberating. Like when you confess and you, you expose your sin to, to the light of God's love, it, it does something. Other spiritual practices are prayer and solitude, fasting, reading Scripture, giving, serving, worshiping with other believers, all of these practices position us for a steady inflow of God's grace. See, I got to say this. The aim of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not to pile on more rules and laws for us. <laughs> he wasn't saying, hey, you've heard the law, don't murder. Well, I'm going to add three more. Don't be angry. Don't have contempt. You've heard the law about don't commit adultery. I'm going to add some more. That's not the aim of his sermon. The aim of his sermon is, to, is not to burden people with more laws. It's to help people understand the nature of the kingdom of God. He says, you thought the kingdom was about keeping these basic rules, not killing each other, not cheating on your spouse, but the kingdom's about so much more. It's about restored relationships. It's about reconciliation. It's about real intimacy. It's about experiencing the joy of covenant love. It's, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a whole new way to live. Ready for the last one? Oh, I, I was afraid somebody was going to say no, or nobody's going to say. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. His third example. Going back to the Old Testament, remember, he's saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And he's taking a part of the law. He's making a statement, not in opposition to Scripture, but to give more fuller expression to it. And then he shares how the law remains, but there's a fuller expression. Verse 31, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What? This is probably the most misunderstood passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Guys, I got to tell you, I have heard horror stories of women who feel trapped in marriages, abusive marriages, where they're verbally run down, even physically abused, but they feel trapped in their marriage because of a misinterpretation of this verse. I have heard horror stories of women going to their church leadership and pastors and saying, look, this is, this is what's happening in my home. Our marriage is falling apart. I'm verbally abused, sometimes even physically abused. And the pastor says, is there any proof of infidelity? And if the answer is no, they tell them to stay in the marriage, in the relationship. Folks, that is not what Jesus is intending for this passage. Interestingly enough, those same pastors don't tell their congregants to chop off their hands and gouge out their eyes. So what's happening here? What's Jesus really getting at? 
Well, just like the previous examples of murder and adultery, Jesus takes another deep dive, saying, yeah, that's the law. It's intact. But let me go behind and show the intention and heart of God in it, because it goes deeper. There's a fuller expression of it. See, in Jesus' day, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. In fact, the school of Hillel taught that, that if, if a wife burned supper, that would be grounds for divorce. There was, another, <laughs> there was another famous rabbi who, who taught this, that, that if you're married and, and the husband sees a woman who he thinks is prettier, that's grounds for divorce. As long as you give a pink slip, as long as you give a certificate of divorce, you could get away with it. So, so it, they had a very dismissive approach to divorce. And so Jesus steps in, and he screeches this whole thing to a halt here. He screeches it to a halt. He says, you've made divorce way too easy. Marriage is, is supposed to reflect God's commitment to us and his desire for intimacy. That's why the scripture, it, it refers to the church as the bride of Christ, right? Because it's supposed to represent something. But their dismissive approach is, 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 is gone too far. And now there was also a justice component to Jesus teaching this because back in Jesus' day, uh, divorce often resulted in terrible, terrible circumstances for women. Uh, it left them with one of three choices if they were given a certificate of divorce. They could go back and stay with their family in a role of servitude. So they would go back to their, the home they grew up in and would take on the role of a servant. And they would have to earn their keep that way. The other option that they had was to remarry, but as damaged goods, and so they would highly be mistreated and marginalized in this relationship. And then third, they could become a victim of prostitution. So there's a justice component here. Jesus is seeing their flippant disregard. They're, they're, people are just giving certificates of divorce out because their wives are burning meals or because they find someone prettier, and, and they're thinking they're okay. And Jesus says, no. See, we do a disservice to Jesus' words here when we fail to understand that they come with nuance, that Jesus is using strong language here in prohibiting divorce to demonstrate the gravity of it. You're making it way too easy. Just like the previous examples, he's shaking people out of their complacencies. As you thought the kingdom of God was just not killing people, not cheating on your spouse, and if you divorce your wife, give her a pink slip. You thought that's what the kingdom of God was, but it's not. It's deeper. It's about restored relationship. It's about reconciliation. It's about real intimacy. It's about a rugged commitment to fidelity. It's about being with and being unto and being for and advocating for your spouse and, and taking a position that, that I'm not married to be happy. I'm married to be holy. Right? It's all these things. That's what the kingdom is. He's trying to convey the gravity of these issues and, and primarily how they inhibit our ability to live a kingdom life. See, look at each one of his examples so far. If you call people ditzy or a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Those are strong words, Jesus. Yeah, but you need to hear them. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm using strong words for a reason because I need to shake you out of complacency. The kingdom is deeper than what you think. He says, if you look at a woman lustfully, gouge out your eyes and throw it away. That's strong language, Jesus. Yeah, but you need to hear it. 
Because you just think that if you don't cheat on your spouse, that you're living a kingdom life. But the kingdom life is much, it's deeper than that. And then he says, if you get divorced, it should only be for infidelity. That's strong language, Jesus. There's one point in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching about this, and some of the men say, it's better not to get married at all then. And Jesus was like, yeah, maybe. Because <laughs> you guys are you're not getting it. There's, a, there's something deeper here than what you think the kingdom is. The kingdom is not just about not killing and not, not cheating and, and just giving a certificate of divorce. It's, it's, it's about a lot more than that. There's a bigger plot to the storyline, and you're missing it. In Matthew 19, a rich young man comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, Rabbi, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus tells him, keep the commandments. That's what you need to do. And he says, well, I've done that, Jesus. Do not murder. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't worship other gods. I've done those, Jesus. I've done them. And Jesus says this, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. See, what do we, here's what we get from that. When we reduce the kingdom of God to just a small basic set of rules, we miss the point. That's why Jesus, he starts this part of his sermon. He said, I didn't come to get rid of the law. It's always going to be here. But I came to fulfill it because there's a deeper, fuller expression. And the minute you and I, as followers of Jesus, start making the kingdom of God about just keeping a list of do's and don'ts and checking our boxes, say, yeah, we do that. And we miss the point, right? Because there's something fuller underneath. See, when we discover Jesus, who he really is, it's like we're watching the movie for the second time. We see it. We read the Old Testament. We're like, oh, oh, of course. All the hints, all the clues, all points to him. He's the center of the human story. It's all about him and the life that he's inviting us into. Now, I'm, I'm a sucker for movies with plot reveals at the end. And it's strange for a pastor to say this, but I think that's one of the reasons I followed Jesus for so long. <laughs> because the Holy Spirit's always revealing something new about Jesus to me. I'm always learning more about him. All the years I've been following Jesus, like, oh, oh, oh whoa, <laughs> Jesus, I didn't know that about you. And when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, these, these people, you have to understand, that they're watching it for the first time, and they're hearing these words for the first time, they're scratching their heads a little bit. You and I, we've seen the movie the second time. We know that Jesus is the one who makes us clean, who reconciles us with God. Why is reconciliation with others important to him? Because it's important to God. And that's what Jesus came to do, to be a reconciler, to restore our relationship with God and with each other. He says, the kingdom, you're, you're missing it. You think it's this, but it's this. And so what I want to do to close this morning is just to pray that the Holy Spirit would just continue to reveal who God is to us. See, we, we have a, a mission statement of reintroducing Jesus. And a lot of times when people hear that, they think, oh, you like reintroduce Jesus to other people. Well, yeah, but first and foremost, we reintroduce Jesus to ourselves again and again 
and again and again. And I want to pray for us to have a revelation of Jesus again and not just once, right, but again and again and again. So can I lead us in a prayer to close us? Next week, Ian's going to finish these other three examples that Jesus gives of the Old Testament law. We did the first half this morning. So if you're brave, come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus' killer sermon on the mount. It's just so challenging and encouraging at the same time. And I'm sure that these words are so powerful that it's something that we'll process for the rest of our lives. But I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us start to process those words by Jesus now. I pray that they would penetrate our hearts and that that we would not be dismissive of them, but we would let them settle. And that we would have more revelation of who Jesus is. God, give us more revelation so that we can respond to you in worship. We can respond to you with with, uh, kingdom living. Thank you for the privilege, the opportunity that you would even call us who are foreign to kingdom living. <laughs> this is not, it has not come easy to us. But Lord, you believe in us and you empower us. And you give us your righteousness instead of our own filthy rags. And God, we can never thank you enough for that. Thank you for staying committed to us when we're not committed to you. Lord, I pray for those here who, who um, are wrestling with some of these words by Jesus. God, that you would... You would um, let them wrestle with them. <laughs> you would be there to speak and encourage and challenge. We thank you that for your commitment and dedication to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand up and we'll close with a worship song. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. 